Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's so good to be with our friends who are here in room 24 and 25, and so good to be with all of you on the live stream. Here's the question uh, we want to think about today, kind of two related questions. Does Judaism teach that if you break it, you can fix it? The it being something that you broke in your own life. If you break it, can you fix it? Can you always fix it? Is it always fixable? Don't worry if you break it, you can always fix it. And kind of a related question, which is, what is the wiser, healthier religious practice and teaching? To teach us that if we break it, we can always fix it. Don't sweat it. You can always fix it. Or is the better, more sane religious teaching, you know what? You can't actually always fix what you break. Sometimes when you break it, it is not fixable. Therefore, put more attention on the front side, not breaking it instead of on the backside. Sometimes Humpty Dumpty is right. And when you have a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's of the, all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And we're going to be thinking about that in the context of Judaism's many voices on the concept of Teshuvah. So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kiddushanu B'Mitzvotah V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah V'harech Adonai Eloheinu Et Divrei Toratcha B'Finu U'Befi Amcha Be'Yisrael so I once uh, heard a lecture from Micha Goodman in Jerusalem that really uh, I still remember is years ago. And what he talked about was how the concept of teshuvah is really a late add-on in the Jewish faith. Um, because, you know, we grow up, uh, those who, who have some kind of a prayer life uh, are used to this paragraph in the Amidah. Forgive us, our guide, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our ruler, for we have transgressed. You forgive and pardon. Praised are you, Adonai, gracious and forgiving. And if you say that three times a day forever, you begin to think, okay, if I screw up, I can fix it. I'll say salach lanu mahalanu. And then God, our forgiving Father God, pick your noun, will forgive us. Micha points out, however, that the notion that God would actually forgive a sin is super late. And it's in Deuteronomy 30. So what I want to do is we're going to try to do a closer textual read today. Um, and if you take a look, for the friends who are back home, um, it's page one of the handout. And for our friends here who are in 2425, the context, this is the first reference to Teshuvah in the Torah. And it's at the end of Deuteronomy. So there's no Teshuvah in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers. There's some sacrifices, like guilt offering sacrifices, but there's no, you go to the temple, but there's no, there's the, the concept of Teshuvah, the words of Teshuvah don't appear until Deuteronomy 30. And it, the context here is, in a serious and severe context, that is, this is after the Tochacha, after God's list of curses, that if the Israelites don't follow the laws of the Torah, and if they don't um, just serve God, then God is going to bring all these horrible curses on them, Okay. 
And then after that, and it's terrible, it's exile, it's sickness, it's death, it's destruction. After that, you get the following. So take a look on page one of the handout, Deuteronomy 30. When all these things befall you, the blessing and the curse that I have set before you, and there's like a, a simple three-part algorithm, and you take them to heart amidst the various nations to which the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and you and your children heed his command with all your heart and soul, just as I enjoin you upon this day, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and take you back in love. He will bring you together again from all the peoples. And as you look in the commentary, the root here of Vlashuv, to return, is, uh, is featured many, many times, ten times in, uh, in just a few verses, and, or seven times in just a few verses. And you can see the poetry of it, and I've underlined it, um, and it's a three-parter, Vahashivota Elavavecha, um, you take to heart, well, I've screwed up, right? You go to your own heart. You return to your own heart. Then Vashavta Adonai, Elohecha, and then once I return to my own heart, then I'll return to God. God, I messed this one up. And at first I return to my own heart. I really screwed this up. Then I go to God. God, I messed this up. And then three, Vashav Adonai Elohecha, and then God is going to return you, restore you to the land of Israel. Now, um, that's the first teshuva in the, in, the, in the Torah. And what I want to ask you to think about is when we get to our reading today, what happened to that? I mean, granted, it's a different book. It's Devorim, but we think of the Torah as a holistic whole. So let's go over here to page five. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And my question to you guys is, what happened to the concept of teshuva when dealing with the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah, where it seems to be just a binary? Um, so, um, Dan, could you read, will you sweep away? This is on page five of the handout. This is Genesis chapter 18, uh, starting with verse 23. Abraham came forward and said, Will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? What if there should be 50 innocent within the city? Will you then wipe out the place and not forgive it uh, for the sake of the innocent 50 who, who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty, so that innocent and guilty fare alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now, these are familiar verses. We've heard them a million times before. But what I wanted to dwell on here, double-click, is the binary that's at the heart of it, which is that there's Sadiqim or Rishayim. And we all know the negotiation from 50 to 10. But what that assumes is you have, you know, you have a community of inveterate sinners who can't come back. The question is, can we find a needle in this haystack? Can we find 10 Sadiqim in a haystack full of Rishayim? Can we find 10 righteous in a, in a haystack full of guilty? Ten innocent in a, in a haystack full of guilty. Um, and there's no concept of Deuteronomy 30 that the people who were uh, guilty or rishayim, evil, uh, could maybe come back. So let me just start with that. Dear colleagues, what happened to Teshuva in Sodom and Gomorrah? Dan? So um, I think that one of the things that you said initially is that the Torah is um, a holistic work and that we oftentimes think about it that way, but actually... I think a lot of times it's not. And, um, of course, it's like the first quote that we read this morning is from uh, Devarim, Devar, the end of Devarim, 
which many scholars say is actually really more connected to the Nevi'im than it is to the first to the first four books. Right. Um, and 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 given that, and then if we take um, if we take the Devarim, if, if, if we take the Nevi'im and look at how many times uh, the people are punished for moving away from God, punish, 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 punish. That happens with uh, with in virtually all of the Nevi'im. And I think that, that that's an interesting connection. The other thing is that um, that the translation here, you know, uh, tzaddik, righteous, but here the translation says innocent, and I think that that's that's quite telling also because the word tzaddik uh, in ancient Hebrew did not mean the same. I think as we take it to mean, you know, a we think of a tzaddik, a tzaddik, someone who does only good, only good, only good, whereas um, a tzaddik in ancient Hebrew meant something a little uh, less than that. Someone who actually has not, someone who has not committed a sin. Right. Uh, they may not be. They may not be going like. They may be more like Noah than Abraham. Right. Uh, so I think that that's part of it, Paul. Yeah. So Dan, just so one the the main thing I take away from your your remarks are kind of a you're a good JPS source critical JEPD person and what strand and what source and that's a fair point for the university and that's exactly how the seminary has trained generations of, of rabbinical students and Bible scholars. I can't speak to Ziegler, uh, but, but what strand, what source, etc. cetera. Uh, but um, I want to just, but I want to move from the university and source critical and Wissenschaftlich Judenskunst, this like academic approach, and ask, you know, we have a, we have a Torah, we have a Chumash, right? And I want, and, 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 and we have a, we have one Chumash. Uh, yeah, in the university we learn about all these different sources, but how do you, uh, I mean, I, we, we, we have Aser Yimei Tshuva, we have Rosh Hashanah, we have Yom Kippur, we have the prayer about Salach Lanu Machalanu, and then you read this famous negotiation where all those concepts of coming back and changing your ways and mending are just gone, and aside from source critical, can you give us an existential read of how all this stuff comes together? Yeah, so a um, couple of things I want to say. The first one is that this story about Sodom and, and Gomorrah how you pronounce it? Sodoma and Gomorrah. That's in Spanish, right? I don't yes. know what you say in English. Anyways, it seems very harsh to me. Very harsh. We, I think that we human beings are very complex. Uh, and we have within ourselves good and evil. And this idea to separate it. Uh, I don't like it. Yeah. And I believe, I, I believe that Judaism has evolved with that. Because think for a minute about when we all, 600 people, in the sanctuary or outside where you guys are, sing together and Chavne, Bagavne, you know, it's all we, we, in the same room, the, the Tzadikim and the wicked, okay? And considering that, you know, yeah, perhaps you, you've seen more than me, uh, nothing, nothing, you know, <laughs> specific about you, Ken, but we are all the same here, in the same boat, and we are, you know, there is room for everybody, and we are all part of that complexity that is good and evil within ourselves. I'm just struggling with the basic premise <laughs> that you set forward. Um, so first off, the premise that it has to be one or the other. Either Judaism has the idea, don't do this, this is bad, and I want to create a morality code for you that if you do this, your life can be really ruined or bad consequences can come. Or you can be forgiven, because I think Judaism contains within it, and all of us need both narratives, the rabbinic mind has a concept called right when you're first coming into something right if you haven't yet done it don't do it but if you've already done it then there's a way for you to make 
amends. And I think, and I see that in the Abraham story too, because you're, if you look at it not just through the eyes of God, who arguably is on the side of Dean of justice here, right. but through the eyes of Abraham, Abraham is wrestling with this modern concept, but God, can't there be something, some way, some window, once it has already happened? And Abraham continues to struggle with that. And last but not least, I love Mika. Right. And he is brilliant, and I would never, ever right. try to argue with him. But, I mean, I, I don't understand how he only sees this concept coming in all the way in Deuteronomy. I, the very first story, when you talk about Cain and Abel, God actually, Abel says, my punishment is too great for me. And God creates a carve-out for Cain where Cain can go on existing. And, and there are a number of stories in between and places we could stay here all day. Right. And I could share more options where I see the possibility of after the fact right. opportunities to keep oh. a door open. But that's not the, the point today. Right. So we, we won't go there. But I, I, I think right. the fundamental premise that it only comes in Devarim fails to read with a Midrashic eye. Okay, so I just want to uh, make the case. I think Mika's a thousand percent right, and I'll just uh, dr draw your attention to page three for a second. And here, here a close textual reading is really helpful because in the verses that talk about teshuva, the, the root is shuv. You know, uh, from Lahashiv from teshuva, uh, shin vavek. Um, and here, if you look at the very first story of human sin, what happens when Cain and Abel eat the forbidden fruit and they get banished? Adam and Eve, Adshufa el Hadama, you go back to the ground, Vel Afar Tashuv, and to dust you shall return. So, so the Genesis view of sin, you're not supposed to have the forbidden fruit and you eat it, is you die. You go back to the earth from which you come, you go to the dust from which you return, and the same root of Shuv in Deuteronomy is used very differently to talk about go to your heart, go back to God, God will restore you. But how beautiful, Wes. Right? Like, why does that have to mean that actually are the seeds, the original seeds of that possibility being planted in the sense that when we look at this story, it's right. not just a story about one God who is constant and unchanging. It's a story about God who, in God's interaction with humanity, grows and changes and shifts. And the, the roots of, you know, you shall be punished. Right? right? God's often in that mode. Yeah, that, this is it. We're done. Right. So we're and saying the same the thing. In Genesis, there's not, there's not a possibility of repair. Can I? You die. I, yes. But in any event, I want to um, back to. Yeah. But I want to go back to Sodom. Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. I think that there's a way to read this story. So if you look on page four, um, we always read it that God is definitely going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God, if you look just uh, in verse 16, God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? But then. What God is actually about to do is just, if you look in verse 21, if I go down and I see that they're not doing the right thing, I will take note. It's not, I'm going to destroy them. It's not, I'm going to punish them. It's not, I'm going to throw them into the ground. It's, I will take note. And we don't know what that means. And Abraham interprets it, that God is going to destroy them. Abraham says, I'm going to fight. I'm going to, what if, what if there are this many people? What if there are this many people? Then will you, but, but. What are you saying? Will you take note? What does it mean for God to take note? It could mean that God is going to punish them and that there's no redemption, but it also could mean that God will have a, a plan in place and that it will work on a behavioral improvement plan but um, Aliza, and get the people to get to a place where they can be. This is the day, this is like Halloween. <laughs> I'm like not even in the same universe as you guys. How do you say that? What about reading it 
in the rest of the verses. What about, for example, the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah a sulfurous fire from the Lord uh, out of heaven. He annihilated those cities. What about that? that? The sulfurous fire part. That's not the automatic outcome. What I wanted to say is that you're talking about tshuva. The, The question is, can you redeem mistakes? And I think in the beginning of the story, the answer is yes, that, the, that it doesn't forbid the possibility of redemption, of, of being able to come back, of being able to pair things. The people don't. But God doesn't say, I'm going to destroy them regardless because they messed up and I just kill people to Wait mess a minute, up. but what you, say, what you do speaks so loudly. I don't care what you say. Deeds speak pretty loud. Well, Sulfurous fire that no, annihilates speaks I, pretty loud. What do we care about in, words? Can I bring in, I mean, Elie Wiesel actually famously said about uh, Bernie Madoff, that he couldn't forgive him. Right. Why? He said because to forgive would mean that he would come on his knees, and he wouldn't do that. And if you read that quote, what Elie Wiesel is saying is something that I think Elise is trying to say that is authentic into our Jewish understanding of the world, that in order to have some form of tshuva, you actually need the other side to do tshuva. And what Elise is trying to say is Sodom and Gomorrah, but they, they didn't do it. So let's talk about what they did, actually. Let's just talk about what, because there's actually two things that they did. And uh, to me, it's pretty clear that uh, you read a story, one verse, through the lens of the rest of the verses. That's called pshat. So when God says, I'll take note, and then at the end, taking note means sulfurous fire that annihilates. That kind of, it's a, but, but anyway, there's 70 phases of Torah. But I just wanted to talk about what is it that they do that makes God do whatever it is that God does. With, okay, so take a look on page 7. There's kind of two different sins that you actually read about in the story. So, um, page 7, verse 4. Uh, this is um, the, the angels, the three angels that Abraham had fed earlier. They had not yet lain down when the townspeople, the men of Saddam, young and old, all the people to the last man, gathered about the house, and they shouted to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may be intimate with them. So Lot went out to them to the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my friends, do not commit such a wrong. This is a great line in the Torah. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you please. But do not do anything to these men since they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. The fellow, they said, came to us here as an alien, and already he acts the ruler. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the person of Lot and moved forward to break the door. Uh, but the men stretched out their hand, pulled Lot into the house with them, shut the door. And the people were at the entrance of the house, young and old. They struck with blinding light, so they were helpless to find the entrance. So what are the sins? What is it that ticks God off? so much about these guys. I just want to say, I don't think it matters. Like, we're not talking about what what we're talking about is tshuva possible, and I think that it doesn't, what matters is after the sin, do they repent and do they try to get back? And the answer is no. But it totally matters. Or even before. It totally matters. Okay, so Harvey Weinstein serves his term and comes on bended knee, and he wants you to mentor him. And he wants to take classes. You're going to teach Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. 
It, that's an uncomplicated what, yes? Uh, totally. Because if he if he's actually done tshuva, if he's actually repented, if he's actually working, my job as a rabbi, my job as a human is to accept him and to work with him to help him to become and, a better and, person. And by the way, uh, by the way, it's actually, back to Ellie Wiesel, it's yeah. not our job to actually forgive him or not forgive him. His victims are the ones who have to forgive him. It's a question about whether can we help him move to the place where he could do okay. restorative justice. Okay, 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 okay. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, yeah. Ask you a question. Yeah, wait a minute. No, let me you just. You seem very against uh, Harvey Epstein and the Kutinari. No. With, with Alisa. <laughs> yes. Let me ask you a question. Yes. Let me ask uh, you a question. No, I. This class is no, going off no, the rails No, 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 because this, <laughs> is, this is an ethical question. Yes. And I want to see what No, no, but you, I want to. No, I just want to respond. Let me ask you a question, please. Yes. You are supposed to, you know, accept questions. You're a rabbi. You listen to people. Yeah. Uh, where do you draw the line? Because I've seen you over and over for more than 10 years at Shabbat Alam, dancing and clapping and singing along melodies that were written by Shlomo Karlebach. And Shlomo Karlebach, as we all know, has some accusations of uh, inappropriate conduct. So right. where do you draw the line that you say yes to a melody from Karlebach, but you say no to Harvey Epstein taking so, a lesson so with Alisa? No, it's, it's a it's Answer a fair... Answer that, please. It's a Answer fair, my question! I, I'm, if you'll let me, I'll, I'll try to do that. <laughs> I, I want to... I wanna, it's, it's a hard question, but I want to say the underlying content of what the person did is all important, is crucially important, is indispensably important. And I think it's a job. I mean, I, 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 so I want to just dance down the slippery slope with you, okay? Um, Jeffrey Epstein, um, Jeffrey Epstein uh, comes to you instead of, if we just do a counter-narrative. Um, he, I know, but, uh, or he sends you money. Yeah, he comes he, to me and uh, says, I want to teach bar mitzvah. Yeah. No, right. So obviously, you can't say that the content of what they did doesn't matter. So or, or Jeffrey Dahmer. I, I think this is very one. No. I th it's just very no, one it, dimensional because okay, you brought the text. Right. So I want to talk about the text for a second. Right. So the it, notice in the text, by the way, with our modern lens, what Locke says is pretty reprehensible. Right. Right. Our modern lens, I my stomach turns right. here, and yet notice who gets saved. From Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, so what about that? What about that, yeah. right? So God actually saves Lot. Right. Now, according to the traditional view, that's because he was so righteous he offered up his daughters. Right? I, I have we a love big tradition. problem. Right. Big problem with that read. Right. Right? So, so then you say, okay, well, maybe this world is not just a matter of over here you're bad and over here you're good. But actually, there's a constant wrestling. We're called Yisrael. I know that that's, you know, a thing that happens in our text um, later on. But, like, we're, we're called into this place and this space where we, we wrestle with God outside of us and we wrestle with the God inside of us. And, and I think there are – it's not just that there are these two poles. Either God is angry and you're completely punished and you're, you're you know, completely out of the tent, your karet here – or you have the opportunity to repent. There are lots of moments and possibilities in between that God leaves room for. And I think we have to leave room for. And I'll give you just one example. Because okay? so I grew up in Los Angeles. But you're, well, yes, but you're I, imposing that on the story. I didn't grow up on there's no, Argentina. I grew up in Los Michelle, Angeles. There's no gradations in the story. Your tzaddikim roshayim. He doesn't find Abraham. Can't find ten. But they're, and so they're all incinerated. They're all incinerated. But Wes, there's the search, and that and search creates the moral dialogue, which right, drives the story forward. Right, but my, my which question continues is, into the next iteration. Right, but my question is, if you look at the evidence of the Torah, 
if you just read the parsha, what is what is it that the men of Sodom, Anshe Sodom, do? You're looking at me with a grimace. What is well, it that the your, men of Sodom do? Your definition of pshat doesn't match up with mine, so I'm having a hard time. Like your pshat doesn't feel like pshat to me, and that's where uh, I my pshat else. is just let's read the Torah and see what it says. And uh, what's, so, what's your point you want to make? Oh, the point that I want to make is that I think we have two very different approaches to the question of can you fix what you break, and um, and that um, that. Devarim seems to say, yes, you can fix what you break. And Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and, and Aser Yom Tshuva seems to say you can fix what you break. And Salach Lanu Machal Lanu Unadeli Amida seems to say you can fix what you break. Right? But I'm not so sure that's right. And I'm not so sure that that is a healthy uh, practice. You know, there's a, um, my daughter is uh, in therapy school. So I'm always listening to, ther- you know, famous therapy things. And there's a woman named Esther Perel who was like, um, who's a Jew in France maybe or somewhere, but she has a European accent, uh, survivor. And her big Torah is that adultery is actually fine. Adultery is not a marriage ender. And she does like a lot of sessions about how couples can come back from adultery and you break the trust and you like a broken bone and you rebuild the bone, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like a whole phenom. And I think... She's full of it. I think she's full of it. And so and so I think there is a real issue. And then the question is, as teachers of a religious practice, I think the wiser policy is, uh, is to be mindful of the fact that you cannot fix everything you break, and therefore don't break it to begin with. Yes, right? So, but you're, you're posing this as if it is an immutable... Um, you know, dialectic here that we're between these two poles and I think our stories that we encounter are just much more nuanced on that point. They're about the struggle between those two poles and not just about the poles. And in fact, Lot himself does things that are reprehensible, does even, even according to this original text, he is not a model citizen and yet he has the opportunity to do tshuva. So there's the text itself, I think, in this story of, of destruction, there's also a story of potential redemption. It's just about if you put the work in. Okay. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree. I, I don't see that as a nuanced story, but, but can we, can, we can discuss why, the... Why did you bring the story of the, that, that your daughter is doing? Oh, because it's, I'm trying, because it's the nimshal of, of uh, the application of these cluster of issues to our lives. Right? Most of us don't actually face Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, most of us don't actually face the tofacha, but the question is, um, how do we live drama-free lives? And I think you live a drama-free life by realizing that what you do today um, is going to haunt your tomorrow or uplift your tomorrow. What you do today is going to uplift your tomorrow or haunt your tomorrow, and it should make you more mindful. Yes. So, yeah, so I want to take a look at the story, the famous story from um, the Talmud about Berurya. And uh, Elias, would you read on page 11, um, there were certain boors um, or uh, brigands, um, barionne are like thieves in Rebbe Mayer's neighborhood. Yes, uh, there were certain boars in Rebbe Mayer's neighborhood that they caused considerable distress. Uh, once, Rebbe Mayer was praying for mercy regarding them so that they would die. His wife, Aruria, said to him, 
This is page 11, by the way. Yeah. What is your resonating portrayal of Frodo's death? Because it is written, let sinners cease from the earth. You therefore emulate King David, just as he prayed for the death of sinners, so too do you pray for their deaths. But is it then the word hotim that is written in the verse, in which case the verse would refer to sinners? No. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, the word written is chataim, which refers to that which causes one to sin, the evil inclination. Accordingly, King David is not praying for the death of sinners, but for an end to the evil inclination that leads them into sin. And furthermore, go down to the end of the verse, which states, um, now, it is definitely... Uh, it, or just read, uh, and, um, and let the uh, wicked, let the wicked be, be, be no more. So pause uh, this here. Is so confusing. Yeah, who, yeah. Who puts together this kind so of take stuff? a look at page... So I, this is... Take a look at page 13. This actually is the concluding verse of the Psalm for Rosh Chodesh. And here you need to get your fingers dirty into some Hebrew. The verse is on page 13 at the bottom. Itamu min ha'aretz urashaim od einam. So, chet, 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 aleph. Chet is a sin, and chataim are sins. Achote is a sinner. Chotaim are sinners, right? So the verse actually reads, as it is currently written, itamu chataim in ha'aretz, let sins um, uh, disappear from the world, and then evil will be no more. But um, curiously, if you look at the last page of the handout, the Tanakh, JPS, translates this as may, may uh, not may sin disappear, but may sinners disappear from the earth and the wicked be no more. Right. It's, uh, it's, so it's actually, it's, it's the, the Hebrew is chataim, sins. May sins be no more. Um, but Rabbi Meir says, well, the best way to get rid of a sin is to get rid of the sinner. And his wife, Beruria, says, no, 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 no. What you want to do is get the person who's sinning to stop sinning, to do teshuva. Um, so, um, the question that I pose is, it does not seem, it, it seems to me that there's a, a, a real creative tension between the Beruria story um, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, because I don't see any capacity here in the story to let the Rishayim not become Rishayim. Um, you just have some violent people and God incinerates them. Um, God here is kind of channeling Rabbi Mayer, and Breuria gives us a different take. And my question to you is, how do you think about these value tensions in the religion that you teach and practice? Mr. Nessel. Yeah. Um, so I, I was actually thinking about both what Eliza and Michelle are saying, that there is a gradation. But one of the questions that you were asked, I might have framed it this way, is, is there a point of no return? In other words, is, is, are, is there potentially a chait uh, that actually, from which you cannot do teshuva? And then I was thinking, very, to me it's very clear, um, you know, um, premeditated murder or, or genocide. You know, um, let's say that, you know, Hitler comes back. Or Putin uh, today. Or, or Putin today. You right. know, or Himmler, or any of these people um, who's... Uh, can they be redeemed? 
And I think that I personally I don't think so. Um, I don't think there's a there's a there's a place for them to be to have redemption, uh, to to do teshuva. But there are there are gradations I think, which is that um, there are some things from which you can come back. But there is but I also believe that as you said there is a point of no return. I just want to say I, I want to just lighten this a little bit because I think when we talk about genocide and we, like all these things are said hard, but I want to just give I teach fifth grade actually in this room right here. Um, <coughs> what do you say? Yeah, <laughs> you, we've never talked about it before. But one of the things that I have in fifth grade is a whole bunch of kids who've been sitting all day in school and have so much still because it's so difficult for them to sit in their chairs. And so my class is, I would say, 50% me teaching and 50% me being like, I'm going to use made-up names here, David, I want to invite you to pay attention. Shuli, is that the best seat for you to be able to focus? Rachel, I want to invite your eyes to return here. Um, paper airplanes are not okay for the classroom. Wait, like I'm like teaching, and also there's all these things that are preventing us from teaching. And there are some things for which I have to send students out of the room. For instance, if someone throws their table at another student, that just means they have to go down to Mora Eileen's office or Mora Alana's office. That's, a, that's something that, that I can give a lot of warnings, and I can give a lot of opportunities for tshuva, but there are some things for which you need, a, you need to leave. And, and that's because of other students' safety, whatever the reason is. And so I think those – and it's not because I don't believe in every student's ability to stay in that class. It's just there are moments where you need to be taken out. Mm. And that's an ama- – I think that's so helpful. Thank you, Aliza, because that's exactly the gradation that we're trying to reach here. And that Shuva, like you can be very sorry and you can actually repent and you can do the work. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it is consequence-free and that – everything's just going to be okay now. Sometimes there actually are consequences that linger that, that cannot be resolved, even if you do the work. I mean, I have a friend, Rabbi Mark Browitz, who goes into prisons and works with people who are in prison, and, and they do beautiful and, and important work, and they endeavor to try to make amends, and that doesn't mean that they shouldn't necessarily be in prison. Michelle, you brought up Ellie Wiesel and Bernie Madoff. Um, what do you think is the learnings? I mean, as, as everybody knows, Bernie Madoff made off with Ellie Wiesel's money and stole all this money that you could never get back to him. Um, is Teshuva possible there? What, what, you brought it to us. What so is the lesson? I, I mean, I, I found his words so interesting because in saying I don't forgive, he said, he, he said there's a possibility that I would forgive. Right? He said if he came, he, he said he would need to come to me on his knees. And, and in this sense, very righteous sense, by the way, and very well-deserved, there is also the flip side of, of what he's saying. I, I love the other quote by him where um, that's often talked about where people ask him again and again, you know, can you forgive for the Holocaust? And he basically says, you know, I, I, I don't have – standing to forgive those from the Holocaust. They have to go and apologize to right. every single person, and that's, of course, impossible. So I think they're, they're, he's holding both. Even in the case of Bernie Madoff, I think he's holding both that there's a righteous, a, a, a righteous fury and anger for having destroyed a world, and there are consequences to that, and that the possibility of Bernie Madoff's chuva is in Bernie Madoff's hands, not in Ellie Wiesel's hands. But let me just – one last question, and then we'll close for the day with this question. I'd like to share if, my L.A. story. Yeah, going to if, answer my question. Yes. If, um, if Bernie Madoff came on bended knee 
and said to Elie Wiesel, I am so sorry that I, you're, I know you're a Holocaust survivor, and I am so sorry I took the $10 million. I'm deeply heartbroken. I'm so sorry. So probably sorry is probably sorry's not enough. Probably yeah. the $10 million right. would be, be enough. And, you know, there, I, I do want to tell the L.A. story at the last moment here because in 1995, there was a big scandal in Los Angeles should uh, there was a Jewish day school that needed to be named. Obviously, Jewish day schools are trying to teach Jewish values. And the Milken family of Michael Milken, of uh, similar to Bernie Madoff, kind of a, a character in the world, he destroyed a lot of people's uh, financial futures with security fraud and all sorts of other. I, I will not, you can look it up. I don't need to do Moti Gemra here. Um, but Michael Milken was a, a very polarizing character, and the question was, should the Jewish day school accept the money from the Milken family and name the school after him? Uh, to which today the Milken day school that right. is in Los Angeles will tell you that um, the Jewish community actually did accept those funds and, and viewed it as a piece of that restoration of the possibility of creating mitzvot out of something that had yeah. been so devastating. So I would, just say, I would just say two things about that. Uh, to quote Larry Bacow, quoting Mark Twain, the problem with tainted money is there's taint enough of it. Um, and that, uh, uh, that money, tainted money can do amazing things, and it's better in the institution that it's given to than for the painter. Um, but I also, I don't know enough about Michael Milken, and, and now is not the time to do it, but I think here, th the Michael Milken reference that you close with exactly underscores my point, it, which is it matters 100%, like it determinatively matters, the content of what you're talking about, because they wouldn't call it the Jeffrey Dahmer Day School. They wouldn't call it the, uh, they, they wouldn't call it the Harvey Weinstein Day School. And they wouldn't call it the Jeffrey Epstein well, Day by School. By the way, they don't call it the Michael Milken well, Day School Milken. either. They call it the Milken Family Fine, Fine. but they, they, they wouldn't call it the Weinstein Family, the Dahmer Family, or the... Right, but wait, can right. I just so touch on that? Why not? Because right? I don't exactly know what he did. I would, uh, and I'll defer to other people who know more. We should probably do some research on this. But I can't imagine that what he did comes comes close to what Bernie Madoff did, and that's why there would never be a Madoff family. So here is like twenty CDs yeah. in my office called the Milken Archive of Jewish Music. Right. Yeah. Right. So guys, so here is. Um, Can I say something? Yeah. My last reflection. Yeah. Um, this is a mitzvah. What you are putting here is a mitzvah. And my question that I finished the class today, perhaps to another class that we can develop the topic is. Who decides what is the limit of teshuva or not? Who? Because, I mean, with all the, the time that I spend prayer to God, I believe God doesn't decide. Because there are so many evil people around the world, and they don't get God's punishment. They got right. human beings' punishment, not God. So the question is, who draws the lines, and, and to whom and to what circumstances? If Bernie Madoff comes back and says, here, here's, these are my $10 million, you know, it's something. But people who rape 120 women, how do you come back from that? Right. There's so no way of coming back. Yeah, so, so who decides what's the limited, and that is my question to you, right. about singing Karlewak music. Great. Okay, so first of all, you know, Bernie Madoff died in prison. His son died, killed himself, right? And I think he, the answer to who decides is you. Each person decides for themselves. And I think, and here's the question I want to close with, and, and I'll answer your question, which is, there's all this, I think, creative tension 
in our sources on teshuva. There just is. There's just a difference between Sodom and Gomorrah in today's reading and Berurah. There's just the reading, a difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and Deuteronomy 30. And the question that I want to ask everybody is, when you leave these contradictory impulses in the sources, uh, what is your basic outlook, your basic mindset on how you're going to try to live your own life, right? And so let me just ask that question. When you leave all these, this welter of sources, if you had to distill your mindset, that what the teaching, when you take all this complexity, what mindset do you take into the world? Anyone? So I'm going to end where I started, which is that Tchila, don't do it, right? right? There are bad things. Do not do them. Right. And, when, and, and encourage other people not to do them. Um, there are consequences. But when those bad things happen, leave open a window. I would say there's a, there's a shift that happens if you look back to the first verse that we looked at, the house of that Ayavav called, we transform that as a liturgy, not before going amongst all the nations, but to be, I don't know, because God is our God, that this is a consciousness of God and God's presence has the power to, to help you in these moments. Holidays, the most difficult singing vocal part for me is at the end of the Messianic Tokens where I go from my high A, which is at the top of my register, and I don't stop. But the phrase is, Right? And perhaps you guys can translate it better, but something like, and will attenuate, you know, the. something like that? Anyway. Wow. Yes. Anyways, so the, exactly. So that's my point. You know, we have to conduct ourselves in the best possible way, but there is there should be room for for teshuva in our in our tradition. Mr. Nelson. Okay. Yeah. Um, I agree with every with this last statement, especially with what Elias said. Uh, it's layered. It's uh, textured, and especially what you said at the beginning, Elias, that um, each human being contains. Um, you know, tzaddik and the potential for rasha, uh, and that uh, that we need to try to balance our lives so that most that we are mostly aiming you know towards the good, and that there's an there's a possibility for teshuva, but again, uh, as I said earlier, I still believe that there is a point of no return. Yeah. So I'll just close uh, by saying I think, t- ironically, teshuva, which we spend a lot of time with in the fall, is uh, is a very um, somewhat dangerous religious doctrine because it can make people think that um, I can roll in the world um, and fix what I break. And reality is that you can't always. And so I here's, here's uh, my outlook. Um, I think the best teaching, the best whole cluster of ideas that I've heard comes from Andy Stanley. Um, seriously. Uh, he wrote, he gave a sermon, which is just a great sermon called How to Be Drama Free. How to Be Drama Free. And his basic point is the way to be drama free is to realize that everything that we do is connected. You ask who decides, right? So that what you did yesterday is connected to today, is connected to tomorrow. And you make a really stupid mistake yesterday, it's going to haunt you today, and it's really going to haunt you tomorrow. And therefore, it, 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 the way to be drama-free, he says, don't ask yourself the question, what's the right thing to do? Ask yourself the question, what's the wise thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? How can, how can my tomorrow 
not be haunted by my mistakes of yesterday? And the answer is by not making stupid mistakes yesterday. So I, that's, that's my thing, is, is like realize the limits of what we can fix and therefore live with that awareness all the time. Um, Elias, you got a song? Thank you, Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>